0: Hey, welcome back on this Wednesday morning uh, with today's uh, COVID-19 discussion. I don't, I don't want to say it's an update necessarily uh, b- because I want to sort of zero in on one specific topic today. And that is the, the stress that this COVID-19 uh, pandemic is going to place on, it already has placed on the healthcare system. All right this is no secret we've seen what's happened in places like Wuhan China the sort of the epicenter of this whole pandemic where you know China went so far as to build several hospitals basically overnight uh really a, a feat of engineering and and say what you will about China and their central command co- economy or or centrally planned economy and 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 whatever else you know insert joke about chinese made goods whatnot, uh it it um it worked out pretty well for them, all things considered. And I think those probably saved some number of lives because they had just so many extra beds. Now, again, there's there's plenty of negative things to say about their response, their lack of transparency, even to this day. Uh, and I'm certainly, I don't, I don't want to ignore any of that, but they did get a couple things right. We, we've seen the breakdown of the healthcare system in Northern Italy, simply saturated with patients, oversaturated, right? It's It's, it's akin to, you know, the soil that is already relatively moist and it receives, you know, some rainfall and then some more and, and some more after that. And eventually it no longer can soak up any more water. And, well, ultimately what happens is the excess water runs, right? It's, it's a flood. I mean, it's a landslide. It depends on where you are. I mean, that's ultimately what, what happens. And this is, I think, a very similar situations to what's happened in, in Italy in that uh, those that have secured and I mean, it's not through any of their own doing, other than maybe getting sick earlier. But secured beds or ICU beds or ventilators—those uh, ones, you know, if they are ultimately going to survive, uh, they have a better chance. They're sort of like the water that's, you know, it, it saturates the soil first. But everybody else after that, once those beds are full, once those ventilators are in use, well, they're—they're they're not going into the soil. They're—they're they're running downhill. They're—they're, they're, you know, sort of getting swept away with the rest of the water, with the rest of the debris and whatnot, unfortunately. And, and for many, that means death, right? So uh, very, I mean, tragic situation, um, very intense situation in, in northern Italy, even right now. And and in the United States and, and I think much of the Western world, uh, this is already being realized to some extent, but but I don't think it's going to get any better There's some pros, and I think there's even maybe some cons to the fact that that we had all this time to prep, and and we've had time to see this coming for for so long now. But before I get to that, uh, just a quick update on sort of what's happened since yesterday. Uh, You know, the markets were up yesterday as of the last time I checked, not all that long ago. The Dow futures were down, still sort of figuring out what to do. I I mean, that's... That's what you'd expect with basically relative or uh, record high volatility. If you're looking at the VIX index, uh, it's been at crazy highs uh, over this past couple weeks, and and so of course you have these huge swings. You know, yesterday I think it was up a thousand points. You know, and that was after like what a three thousand point drop or almost. So uh, we'll see what today holds in store. But if you listened to my podcast yesterday, you know that this is. Not a day-to-day process. We need to start thinking this in terms of not just weeks, even, but months. This pandemic, uh, the lockdown, and the decrease in consumption associated with that, and and I get it. You know, government can do what they can to to step in and try and save the day. Whether we're talking about the Federal Reserve, which is, you know, quasi-government, if if we're getting technical here, other central banks, the U.S. government, right? Uh, they, they can step in with fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, uh, but there's only so much you can do. I think some point and and the risk with all of that is well I, I shouldn't even say risk it's almost a sure thing the side effect of all of that is further debasement of currency whether we're talking about the dollar in the case of the u.s government and the fed or the euro or the yen or uh the pound uh the yuan whatever currency we're talking about here debasement inflation ultimately and that's it's very risky as well Um, And and more and more, I mean, I think this, it's a black swan event of all black swans, this pandemic. Nobody saw it coming. People saw it coming. Don't get me wrong. You know, I I talked about this Michael Osterholm. He wrote about it in his book, right? He basically, I think the title of the chapter was along the lines of, uh, you know, SARS and MERS, referring to of course, the SARS outbreak, and then MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is still endemic in some areas, much more deadly, but not as widespread as SARS was, and certainly as this one is. Uh, he wrote about in his book, and the title of the chapter was basically SARS and MERS, Harbinger of What's to Come, right? He said, you know, China is just a hotbed for these types of, of viruses, right? We're going to have another virus coming out of China, and, and ultimately, it's, eventually, we're going to have one. It's going to be worse than what we had before, right? And so, uh this is people predicted this but to the day, to the week, to the month, to the year. No, nobody did. This is a huge black swan. Huge black swan for the economy, for the markets. And and I think it really fits neatly with this whole idea of the fourth turning. But but that's a discussion for another podcast whatever. Um today we're 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 seeing uh just some headlines from zero hedge, Italian debt crashing, prompting ECB intervention again, inflationary policies, but you know, gotta gotta bail out the what water they can out of the sinking ship that is, you know, the Eurozone. Uh, coronavirus cases, uh, jumping in places like South Korea and Hong Kong, uh places that were, you know, Seem to be under control. Singapore has seen a bit of an uptick lately. Nothing crazy. It sounds like a lot of its cases that are imported. Not a whole lot of community spread, hopefully, in those areas. But something to keep an eye on. Something that they... I mean, this is the future of the United States. and a lot of Western countries. What what South Korea and, and Hong Kong are doing. I mean, they have it under control. But they're still having to you know, drastically modify their Their behavior uh their their economy based on the threat of of importing cases and and there is a heck of a lot of places to import them from uh places like like Italy, uh Germany, Spain, France, cases continue to spike there and there's a whole host of other european countries that are, you know, I'm, I'm sure on a per capita basis right behind those countries. Maybe right with them depending on what their testing is like. Countries like uh, basically the whole of scandinavia sweden finland norway denmark i think denmark's part of scandinavia um technically the uk uh netherlands on and on I and mean, there's some there's some countries that have closed their borders early on and may not be as bad on a you know relative to population basis cases per thousand or hundred thousand but but still uh getting worse and worse you know by the day in, in Europe and of course the United States our cases continue to increase really exponentially and and that's been the case for a long it's been the case for weeks and weeks now in the United States uh, but it's it's only now that we're getting enough tests out there in fact you know to date and this would be as of uh, four o'clock eastern time yesterday in fact I can get you exactly how many cases we've tested here in the United States as of yesterday, uh, or, or even maybe even today. This would be the 18th, so 18th this morning. Uh, 58,000, a little over 58,000 tests. And and that might be slightly more because some states, some places just aren't publishing them, um, especially like negative tests. So it might be slightly more. Um, put that in perspective, I, I saw, I think it was an Ian McKay on Twitter, somebody who early on kind of had jumped on this and, and was very vocal about this, this COVID-19 back then, 2019 NCOV. It was, it was talking about Queensland in Australia doing upwards of 20,000 tests. You know, Australia's, I mean, their population's tiny compared to the United States. It's really, it's shameful. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. But anyways, uh, that's enough about updates. Uh, let's get to the, again, the main topic of today's video, and that is the healthcare system. And I'm going to be focusing primarily in the United States, but I think this is true for a lot of, of countries around the world, a lot of Western countries that have a similar capacity in terms of, of the healthcare system. You know, I did something on Twitter. I've been on Twitter for a while following this. I think it's a really great resource, and, and you have so many smart voices on Twitter to, to listen to and follow. And what I actually did, if you, if you want Just my thoughts on it is, well, if you go over my Twitter, you know, at Silver Fortune, I think that's what it is. Uh, Silver Fortune YT, or you can just search Silver Fortune, you'll find me. Um, I actually created a list, and and maybe I'll have to share it on my Twitter, retweet it or tweet it out. But basically what it is, is I put on this list a whole host of of Twitter accounts that I have been following, and I think are legit and and offer really good insight, right? So you're probably not going to find like the CDC or the WHO on there you're not going to find uh, you know what's it, Dr. Tedros, uh, the head of the who you know instead you know I have members like like a variety of, of epidemiologists, um, you know virologists, some some uh, practitioners that have been talking about this a fair bit um, We have you know Eric Townsend's on there, uh, Ben hunt, uh, Ian McKay who I mentioned previously again uh, Jim Bianco, you know these are some, Know, peak Prosperity, these are some financial side of things, but then also a whole lot of practitioners, epidemiologists, and I'll keep, I'll keep adding to the list periodically. But, but on Twitter, what you're seeing right now, if you look around, if you look in the right spots, you can find a whole host of, of uh, practitioners. A lot of them are, are MDs. I'm sure the PAs and nurses are out there too, maybe not to the same extent, uh, talking about their, their struggles that they're facing right now. Here in the United States, uh, which is really astounding—not that—not that they're facing struggles, but but the narrative is that the U.S. right now is not in the same spot as Italy or or where China and Wuhan were, we're, we're and we're probably not. But the challenges that the healthcare system is already facing is astounding, and I'll start off with this: uh, PPE, you now personal protective equipment, which which can, you know, in the healthcare setting mean a lot of things, but ultimately what it means for these individuals are things like uh, N95 masks, as opposed to just plain you know, procedure masks or plain masks that, that aren't very good at preventing uh, an individual from, from becoming infected or from from grabbing an, uh, an infection from, from a patient they're treating. Uh, I, I, masks, um, things like PAPR helmets, positive air pressure helmets, um another way to to again prevent that infection. Um uh, and, and I, I don't know, I haven't seen as much about things like gowns and gloves and whatnot. Those may be in better supply. Uh, but but already a lot of these hospital systems, these emergency departments, these, these med surge floors, they are ICUs. They're running out of all of those items. And and we're only relative I mean, if you look at the the estimates, we're weeks to maybe months out from the peak of this virus here in the United States. And, and, and if you look at China, I mean, they, I mean their, their numbers are bogus. But even if you look at their official data, they still have a ton of people in the hospital and people are dying every day still, right? Still a huge demand for PPE there. And, and part of this here in the United States is, is again, maybe the, a bit of a curse of, of seeing this so far out ahead of time. That there, I think, to this day, and, and maybe a week or two ago, some hospital systems, some EDs, that were, I think, just going nuts with PPE, using it, and and rightfully so, but maybe partially with with a bit of lack of foresight. And this isn't necessarily something I'm putting on the docs or the nurses. It's more so just a regulatory thing, right? And ideal scenarios, all your PPE, it's it's. Single use, uh, yeah, like the PAPR helmets and what, you can reuse, you can wash and reuse those. But N95s or procedure masks, surgical masks, gowns, gloves, all of that, it's single use. You walk into a patient's room, you do your thing, you take it off when you leave, right? but But I think you can see the problem here that if you are a hospital that maybe doesn't even have a COVID-19 case yet, but you're taking precautions as though, Every viral pneumonia or every pneumonia case or every person with a cough that comes in to the ED or comes on to the floor or whatever is potentially COVID-19 and, and, and until confirmed otherwise. You're going to burn through that PPE before you even come close to, to the peak. And And part of it is that, well, one of the problems with that is that the, these hospitals, these healthcare systems, have done nothing to to sort of stockpile those goods, right? And and the U.S. you know the U.S. government allegedly has a stockpile of things like N95s and and they're slowly distributing them. But first of all, I don't have a ton of faith in the U.S. government in terms of their ability to distribute it well, right? Um, second of all, I I think it's going to be wholly inadequate. In fact, you know, as as I was following one, I'll have to find this post here. This is from Chen Bariatrics One. Uh, her, her Twitter name right now, as of right now, is Please Stay Home. She's a uh, surgeon. Uh, I think, I would assume Chen Bariatrics, probably a bariatrics surgeon. Um, out on the West Coast, I think. Anyways, she was, uh, she, she had tweeted something about how, you know, donate your stuff. You're, you're no, if you've been uh, hoarding masks, um, donate them, right? And some people were kind of replying to that. And I'm not going to be able to find it super well here, um, but but people were were kind of replying to that and some of these other posts that I've seen on here about the hoarding of masks and 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 how you should give them up. Now hoarding can mean a lot of different things, um, but the the point. I mean, if you have a thousand masks, it's probably excessive, uh N ninety fives. But but the point of of what one one person replying was saying is like, why should I I mean if if, if masks first of all, if masks are effective, especially N ninety fives, to prevent infection, hence the recent healthcare workers want them, why shouldn't I be able to have them in the community, especially if it spreads as much as we think it might, right? It's a understandable idea. You know, that's why not? I mean this is America, right? Um but furthermore, you know, this person went on to say, like, well, look, I bought these two months ago in preparation. Why wasn't your hospital doing the same? And why should I have to pay for your hospital or your healthcare system's lack of preparation? And, and I get it. I get both sides of it. You know, I back in, in late January, when I saw this coming, I went and, and I looked at Amazon and they weren't sold out, but it was expensive, a lot of the N95 masks. And so in fact, back then, in fact, if you listen to some of my past uh, podcasts, I said, you know, if you guys are looking for N95s, uh, check out Menards. You know, Menards is similar to like a uh, a Lowe's, uh, a Home Depot. Uh, check out their website, right? And and back then, I actually ordered, you know, twenty. I, I still have nineteen of them, and you know, I've been considering, you know, maybe sh- I should, you know, donate some to my local ED or or local firefighters, you know, EMTs, whatnot. And maybe I will, right? Um, but I don't consider nineteen a hoard. Um, and and honestly, what you're seeing here, I think, is early on some of these some of these hospitals uh really burnt through this i i would guess i don't you know have hard evidences but really burnt through a lot of these supplies early on and now you're seeing these crazy cases where nurses doctors etc practitioners are wearing these masks like for an entire shift which is a bit of a a bit of a risk right because the problem with that is that that with this virus not only are you risking infecting anybody else you see with the virus that may be on your mask or on your PPE, it's it, I mean it's not super like but, but there's potential there absolutely. but anything else somebody is infected with bacterial or or you know something along the lines of a bacterial pneumonia, strep, uh, influenza, Right, any other sort of cold or or flu-like type illness that is an influenza or this specific coronavirus, you're risking spreading that to all the other patients. I mean, co-infection, if that's the right term, is a real possibility. So PPE, that's a huge problem right now for the healthcare system. And the supply is really having a hard time catching up with the demand. Maybe eventually, maybe a couple weeks from now. But right now, and the problem with that this is the next huge stress on our current on our health system currently. And that is uh, individuals that are ultimately getting sick with, with COVID-19, or because of lack of PPE, lack of, of protocol, lack of precautions, whatever, are exposed to patients that ultimately are found out to have COVID 19. But and, and because of that. You know, oftentimes exposed without the proper PPE. Because of that, are then told that they have to isolate, which is an understandable precaution. But they, they, you know, that that takes an entire, you know, that. I mean, how many in an emergency department? Just how many you know doctors are there? How many nurses are there on a given day, right? And you take one of those doctors away, you take one of those nurses away uh, because of something like this. Because of they're told they have to isolate until it's it's for sure that they don't have it. You. You're really, it's like a power play in hockey, right? Your, your team is down a player for a while. And that's a huge struggle when you are, are already saturated with these types of cases. Right? Uh, and then there's a case where there's, you know, I saw somebody else tweet about this, how there's a huge amount of cases that are just being told to go home, self-isolate, because we can't get you a test. You know, the testing is really just inadequate. That's another huge problem with our healthcare system right here in the United States. Maybe to some extent for other countries, but the United States for sure. Just not enough capacity. Tons of tests to go around. Just not enough people and labs to process them all, right? And so people are told, go home, because you don't quite meet our criteria, which is still ridiculously high. I've been complaining about this for, for over a month now the criteria to test, it's still very strict because we just don't have the capacity, right? They can give whatever excuse, but it's just a lack of capacity. And uh, and what that means is those individuals go home, but but ultimately it's oftentimes not resolved. They go home, maybe they get better, maybe they don't, but we don't know if they have COVID-19 or not. And guess what? Oftentimes in those types of scenarios... People fall into that category, that situation I described before, where they're exposed to this patient without the proper PPE. I, I would hope you know the protocols in place where everybody gets a proper PPE now. But again, PPEs running is running out; they're, they're running low on those supplies. Um, and, and now those individuals have possibly actually been exposed to somebody that had COVID nineteen, but they don't know it. They don't know it definitively, and so they're not told to go home and quarantine to self isolate. Right. And, and, you know, with the demand right now for healthcare workers, for nurses and doctors and PAs and et cetera, they're probably not willingly going to take themselves out of service. Right. That's a huge struggle. And ultimately, they could get sick. Right. And, and what does that mean? Well, maybe they're not going to spread it to their patients. You know, maybe that PPE is going to prevent that spread. Um, but you know what, it might not prevent is a spread to other practitioners to their family members at home, right? I, I think that there's some that have a very good understanding that, look, I'm, for the next couple months, doctors, nurses, PAs, et cetera, other practitioners, that I've, I'm have i in a high-risk environment. There's a high risk that I have COVID-19. I understand that many cases are asymptomatic, that yeah, I can be a spreader before I'm symptomatic, et cetera. I'm going to go home and not see my family, right? I'm, I'm just going to separate myself from them. As, as I saw one person say, they're just going to stay in their garage apartment for a while because of all this. But there's a lot of healthcare workers that aren't going to do that because they don't have that option, um, because maybe they they have a you know don't fully understand that you know it's it's just that transmissible. Like they can take a shower, they can take all their their dirty clothes off or whatever their their contaminated clothes, but that's not necessarily enough because. Ultimately, the, the primary spreader of this is going to be their respiratory system and not their clothes that they're making sure their kids or their spouse or loved ones aren't being exposed to, right? And, and by the way, I mean, I want to say that I have a huge amount of respect for these healthcare workers that are put in these situations, um, but I, I don't know. There's not really a but to it. They're, they're just put in a really difficult spot right now, and, and it's only going to get worse as these cases spike. Um, A lot of these, again, a lot of these hospitals, a lot of these systems are already in um, high alert mode, and and their cases have been minimal, at least they're confirmed cases, right? But it's going to get worse for a lot of these systems, uh, far from the peak in a lot of these areas. You know, another problem, speaking of which a lot of areas, you know, comparing the US and, and European countries to Wuhan, Wuhan was an epicenter. And outside of Wuhan, there's a lot of, I think today there's still a lot of cases, honestly. But there were a lot of cases outside of Wuhan. But the demand for nurses and doctors was, was much, much smaller in those provinces. And, and China's a huge healthcare system. And so ultimately what you had happen was huge amounts, you know, dozens, hundreds maybe, of doctors and nurses flown into Wuhan to help treat right? At least that's what I remember seeing at the time. The U.S., I don't think we'll have that luxury. I mean, where do you grab those from? I mean, first of all, the the healthcare system, whether it's beds or doctors and nurses, is really designed for, you know, we're talking about standard deviations, the bell curve, you know, the, the 95% of that bell curve or the you know the middle two or three standard deviations and and this event certainly is not uh, within you know two or three standard deviations in terms of demands on the healthcare system. And so already even with just a couple cases hospitals, clinics, etc. may not have nurses and doctors to spare. Right? So if if Seattle or San Francisco or New York are dealing with with difficult uh Strain on their system because they're having some of the largest outbreaks. Or L.A. Uh, they can't necessarily just pull doctors and nurses from upstate New York or upstate California or, or Washington. You know, you can't just pull them because those hospitals, though they may have less cases in some of those areas, are still saturated. I mean, they're they they don't have they can't spare them yet at all, right? And that's the problem with this is that there's so many epicenters, so many hotspots in the United States that it's hard to pull those types of resources, those human resources, those that labor, from one place to another. And the other problem is that, I mean, this is the United States. This isn't China, again, a centrally controlled system where, I mean, you don't really have a choice. If, if the government tells you to, to fly out to Wuhan, you, you don't really have much of a choice in the United States, you do. You have really no obligation at this point to do any of that, right? Um, and speaking of no obligation in the healthcare system, there's no obligation necessarily to go into work. What's the worst that could happen right now? You lose your job. And, and I think what that means is that I don't think you'll see too many docs, unless they're super high risk or they have high risk family members or something, just say, no, I'm not going to do this, right? Right. And, and probably the same is true for, for nurses, PAs, a lot of other practitioners, clinicians. But what about those that really make the hospitals tick? What about those that are more on the administrative side of things? Those uh, CNAs and aides? What about uh, those that are turning these rooms over, cleaning them in between patients? That's where my concern is. Because already these individuals don't have a ton of job security and they don't have a whole lot of incentives other than, you know, a, a pat on the back and, and you know, you're, you're helping save society. Um, they don't have a whole lot of other incentive to keep their job, especially if it's sort of a life or death thing for them. I mean, there, some for some, you know, there's this idea of a CNA in the United States of, of this young 20-something or, or maybe teenager, uh, you know, Helping move these patients and whatnot, but I mean, there's a lot of CNAs in their 40s or 50s too, um, and, and the risk that they're potentially putting on their themselves, their families, may be too great for them to decide to to stick with it. And and I totally get that decision. I mean, it's it's a tough one, but but if you're getting paid like 12, 13 dollars an hour to constantly expose yourself to a potentially life threatening illness, right? This isn't just the occasional but still serious you know, exposure to MRSA or C-diff or, or you know, influenza or something. No, this is COVID-19. And there's a lot of fear and apprehension about it. And I think that's going to be a huge problem as well. Ultimately, I think what this is going to come down to, um, two things I think healthcare systems need to start doing now that I think many may not be doing. First of all, start hiring Those people that I just discussed, even if they're, even if you don't have shifts, a ton of shifts for them to work, maybe not CNAs. I mean, that takes some training, takes some, you know, but things like cleaning crews, start hiring them ASAP because you will need them. You'll need them cleaning out entire rooms, entire EDs, uh, ambulances, etc. Hire them now, right? Train them in. There's a ton of people that will be looking for work right now. Um, potentially, you know, low-wage workers that are willing to accept those relatively low wages that are paid to these individuals. Step number two that needs to happen now. I mean, the hospitals are already looking for PPEs. They're already looking to expand ICU beds. They're already looking to do all that. Step number two is that you need to start cross-training some other practitioners, right? Uh, ED docs and 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 uh, pulmonologists and 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 a lot of these you know people that that specialize in intensivists, people that work in specialize in the ICU, specialize in respiratory cares. All those things are in hot demand right now. Hot commodity. But inevitably, healthcare systems are going to have those individuals go down because of of lack of precautions when being exposed to a potentially COVID-19 positive patient and they need to self-quarantine. Or they'll legitimately get sick and they'll have to self-quarantine. Right? And so... You need to have people to replace them, doctors and nurses from elsewhere in the facility, right? So, I mean, if you're an ICU nurse, right, and you go down, you may need to be replaced by an OB nurse or a nurse from your local clinic or what have you, right? Um, These ED docs are probably the most capable people on the planet at what they do. But when they go down, you need to have somebody that's at least somewhat capable, Right? And so, I don't know what that's going to look like ultimately for these healthcare systems. I imagine there's some practitioners that may be not all that useful in terms of, of you know, cross discipline or not even you know, cross discipline, but from one specialty to the next. You know, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, um, I, how, how how effective are you going to be on the floor of the emergency department, or are you even going to to do that? You know, but if you're a GP, if you're a family doc, if you uh, you know, work elsewhere in the hospital and are used to working with patients in these, these difficult spots, are you going to be able to, especially since a lot of clinics, I know locally here, my healthcare system, one of them has canceled routine appointments and they've canceled electives, surgeries, elective operations, which means you have a lot of people that you can free up to work elsewhere in the system. And I think that's going to be totally necessary because in the United States and in Western countries, you don't. You probably won't have that option of shipping in a whole fresh crew from across the country because that fresh crew is not uh, non-existent. Those other docs, those other nurses, are a just going to say, "No, I'm not going to fly halfway across the country to put myself at risk." Uh, this is America; I have that freedom. Or b uh, they're already going to be busy dealing with their own outbreak. So, um, a, a huge stress on the healthcare system. Um, so, a lot of respect for those that are and and you know, I should say it's not just nurses and doctors and PAs and those practitioners, but but the cleaning crews, the CNAs, the administrators that may be putting themselves at risk. Um, hey, even things like security guards and whatnot. I mean, all those things, uh, the EMTs, firefighters, uh, huge respect to all those individuals, putting themselves at a huge amount of risk right now uh, for, you know, sort of the greater good. That's a that's a lot of selflessness and, and uh, certainly a a huge deal. Very, very appreciative. I think we all should be appreciative of that. Um, So as always, though, uh, thank you for tuning into today's podcast. Um, More to come tomorrow. I'll focus more on the markets, more on on the economy, etc. tomorrow. But I wanted to get this off my chest about the healthcare system and and the dire straits that it's in right now, I think. Uh, and, And hospitals need to continue to adapt. As always, thank you and God bless.